Hello, this is Scott Winnale, and you're watching TW Now. The Hippocratic Oath, taken by many doctors at the start of their career, involves committing to the good care of their patients. How does this oath fit with a society where the right to life is evolving into the right to die? Do we have an inherent right to end our own life and even the lives of our sick children? Can doctors truly help a patient improve or remain comfortable if they're also able to assist their patients to die? As we look around the globe and even around our own nations, we're witnessing governments once charged with protecting the lives of their citizens, now approving the right to die. More nations are allowing the elderly or terminally ill to take their own lives. Shockingly, at least to some of us, some nations are now allowing the termination of terminally ill children. End of life suffering is horrible. It's very difficult to watch, and as many of us know, it is hard. But should doctors be allowed to help their patients end their own lives? Today we have with us two returning guests who will update you on this global trend and also share a biblical perspective on this morally questionable and emotionally difficult topic. I want to welcome back both of our guests. Mr. Gerald Weston is a presenter on Tomorrow's World. He's a longtime writer. He's a longtime minister and Bible teacher who has studied the pers this perspective and many other pressing moral issues. Mr. Stuart Wahabich is also a Tomorrow's World presenter and writer. He's a minister and Bible teacher who has worked with governments and educational ministries in Christian and non-Christian nations. He's also done considerable research on this particular topic and presented on it in the past. He's joining us via Skype from Alberta, Canada. Mr. Weston, Mr. Wahavich, welcome to both of you. Thank you. <clears throat> By the way, with joining us today, I do want to encourage you, if you have any questions as we go along, please feel free to send them our way and we'll do our best to get to them. Let's go ahead and start, Mr. Wahavich, with you, and I'd like to ask you about some definitions. Uh, as we get started, I want to make sure we're all on the same page. What is physician-assisted suicide? What does it mean, and what are the machinations related to it? Well, I believe this is a big cultural change uh, in the practice of medicine um, that has taken place over the past uh, decade or so. Um, here in Canada and in other places in the United States, there is something called medical assistance in dying, or MAID. And uh, subsequent to uh, going through all the legal procedures that a person would have to go through, the patient would be provided with a some sort of lethal uh, drug that they would on their own administer. Uh, in addition to that, there's also physician-assisted death or physician-assisted suicide where actually the physician would be the administrator of the lethal substance or process. Um, in addition to that, not necessarily legal in Canada or the United States, but certainly legal in parts of Europe, we have both involuntary and voluntary euthanasia, in which the individual who is subject to the process has not given consent. Uh, those are the uh, seemingly the, the various definitions that that are at play in this whole idea of uh, doctor-assisted death or doctor-assisted killing of an individual. Okay. I want to come back to some of those issues in a couple of minutes, but before we do, Mr. Weston, I'd like to ask you for just a little bit of insight. We, we've come a long way in medicine. As I alluded to in my opening comments, uh, it used to be that 
doctors worked hard to spare the lives and extend the lives of people. Today, uh, we're terminating lives early and giving people the opportunity to terminate their own life legally. Why would people choose to make that choice? Sure. I think all of us can appreciate the, uh, the suffering that does go on in this world. We've probably all had a close relative, a friend, uh, that we've watched die. Uh, I saw my mother die. Uh, she stayed in our, own, our home for about nine weeks before she died. Um, we don't like to see anybody suffer, and we certainly don't like to suffer ourselves. But um, when you look at the bigger picture, there, there are other issues besides just what is convenient for me right now. Uh, part of the problem is we've come to the place where we don't have any real purpose in life other than just having fun and enjoying this physical existence for a period of time and when it ceases to be fun then people decide that they want to to bring their lives to an end and uh, that that leaves out a, a greater purpose mm -hmm. uh, something something larger than just the here and the now and we definitely want to come back to that later mm -hmm. in our conversation as well difficult decisions at the end of life mm -hmm. it's just it's the reality today and it has been for for eons i would guess Mr. Wahavich, when we think about um, this physician-assisted suicide concept around the world, what are we seeing? What are we beginning to see? What are some of the concerning events or trends that we're starting to watch? Well, when uh, physician-assisted uh, suicide was legalized here in Canada, for example, and I believe the situation is very similar in the states of Oregon and Washington in the United States, Governments uh, all uh, indicated that there would be safeguards. And there were numerous safeguards put in place. Uh, for example, the person needed to be in intractable suffering with a uh, prospect of death within six months. It was foreseeable in, in the immediate future. They had to be coherent to make an informed decision. Uh, there was, in, the person signing as a witness could not be someone who could benefit from the death. That is, they couldn't be a beneficiary or they couldn't be a medical, uh, person that's going to benefit financially from the process. There were these various safeguards. Uh, one of the things that has uh, been noted uh, by a doctor, uh, Perea, who was uh, with the Department of Oncology and also the head of the Department of Palliative, Palliative Care Medicine in, in Ottawa, uh, wrote a, uh, a document where he studied this issue quite uh, extensively, both in Canada and in the Netherlands and Belgium. And his biggest concern was what he called definition creep. It starts with a nice package of protections, but over the years, things change. He writes in, his, uh, in one article that uh, these laws, referring to those safeguards, uh, are regularly ignored. And he's referring to the situation in Belgium, for example, um, in all jurisdictions, and that transgressions are not prosecuted. For example, about 900 people annually are administered lethal substances, and here he's referring to the Netherlands, uh, without having given explicit consent. And in one jurisdiction, almost 50% of cases of euthanasia aren't even reported. It goes on, some jurisdictions extend the practice to newborns, children, people with dementia. A terminal illness is no longer a prerequisite. And then in the Netherlands today, euthanasia for anyone over the age of 70 and who's tired of living can now be considered. That's the definition creep. And I think that's where the fear comes in. Uh, the fear is uh, how is this going to be a factor that may be a risk to the elderly, 
the disabled, the vulnerable people in society, the undesirable of society. Uh, other societies in history have made movements to get rid of these individuals. Uh, and there is a risk that definition creep, as we have seen in the Netherlands and Belgium, can be a real factor. And I, I think that's a, a huge concern of many people who express uh, their reticence to uh, approve or um, advocate for this particular process. Yeah, I, I'd like to just <clears throat> add to that mm -hmm. with uh, definition creep. I think that we see that all the time with, with new movements. In the case of uh, assisted suicide, or however we want to describe it here, we see that in the Netherlands. We see that in Belgium. Uh, Belgium, I, I believe, was, uh, no, or the Netherlands, no, it was Belgium. Uh, the age was 14. Uh, they had to be above, well, above a certain age. That's changed. Mm -hmm. uh, they've changed the laws so that now uh, someone of any age can be uh, put to death, and uh, they have a nine-year-old and eleven-year-old that have actually been uh, quote euthanized. Now there are always going to be supposed reasons for it, but what can a nine-year-old or eleven-year-old really know about that situation? Yeah, that bothers me too. I <clears throat> I read about that, and um, those children were given the option. They were given the option, mm -hmm. and the assumption was made that they have the cognitive perspective to be able to say, yes, I, I think I would like to end my own life. <clears throat> that, that's concerning when we, when we see that. Where could this go? Because I know that there are ethicists that are talking about this, and there are lots of individuals and, and medical doctors who are saying, well, this definition creep is concerning. Why is it concerning? Well, well I, uh, go ahead. Oh, sir. <laughs> I wasn't sure who, uh, I just in case of my own uh, position, I know he, we were talking the other day, and uh, uh, he was even indicating, you know, now they want me to kill people and violate the Hippocratic Oath that I took, which uh, when doctors have taken that oath, uh, they state, I will not give, uh, I think I can actually quote it here, I will neither give a deadly drug to anyone who asks for it or even make a suggestion to that effect. And now doctors, I know the Hippocratic Oath is now changed or not given at all to new uh, graduates. There are still many practicing physicians who have that and are concerned that they will be required by law to perform these kinds of services which they find ethically problematic. There's also the issue uh, that's been reported at some universities and one uh, magazine called The Health Reporter. Uh, the province of Alberta reported it could save $138 million a year if uh, doctor-assisted suicide was uh, implemented in the province of Alberta. So there are concerns that even financial issues and whatnot could add pressure uh, to uh, terminate the lives of people who really don't want to be terminated. Mm. Yes, uh, less statistics are all over the place, of course, but uh, at least some reports say that less than one-third of the people who are euthanized actually are in a terminal condition. So it always starts out that, well, it's only for those who are terminally ill, mm -hmm. in severe pain, uh, within six months of dying, according to the doctors and everything. But then it comes into depression, uh, lifestyle in general, and it is creeped far beyond what it started at. So do you think it could become possible in our societies where uh, people get to a certain age and they just say, you know what, I'm, I'm tired of living or I've lived a full life. I, I don't really want to die of bad consequences. I don't know if I will or not, but I, I don't want to. Um, I'm 68 years old. 
why don't you just put me to sleep while I'm while I'm happy, and then you guys can collect my uh, whatever life insurance and and go on and not have to deal with things. Do you think we could get to that point? I, I think, I think we we're that point there. in some places already. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead, Mr. No, I think we're already at that point in some some locations. And with some individuals, everybody's different. Uh, as I said, once they get to a place where life is not, quote, fulfilling, uh, why not just uh, end it here and, and uh, take myself out of the, out of the gene pool? Hmm. Yes, you have organizations like Dying with Dignity, who I believe operates both in Canada and the United States, who are openly advocating for this. Um, they, you know, we, we used to have a culture, as I, as I said, in Western, uh, Western culture, where because of our various religious uh, beliefs and uh, which put moral constraints on individuals, uh, this sort of thing was not acceptable. Um, now with those restraints largely removed because people uh, in general are moving away as a population from uh, those types of beliefs, the constraints are removed and organizations like Dying with Dignity see no reason why we shouldn't terminate the lives of those who want to die. There can be nothing wrong with them, but they just want to die. More, more serious, uh, here in Alberta we've already had applications for some uh, teenagers who are simply depressed, mentally depressed but not otherwise healthy, uh, who want to terminate their lives and we have advocates supporting that. And, you know, in many, many cases, uh, there is a huge probability that with some proper treatment and encouragement and some hope in their lives, these people could live very happy and productive lives. And if we just say, all right, if you don't want to live, we'll just terminate it, and that's it. We take away that, that opportunity. And uh, unfortunately, um, th we're already there at that point where people are making that demand. I'd like to add a little bit to that. Uh, there's a term that has been used over the last half century or so of useful idiots. Uh, a, more, a kinder term would be useful innocence. And that is that you have a lot of people who uh, hear the arguments from these activists that are promoting this, and it sounds logical, it sounds reasonable. They don't really think very deeply about it, and they go along with it. They're, they're the allies of these individuals. And what we're doing is we're creating in our culture a, a culture of death. Uh, we have abortion uh, on demand. Uh, we have, uh, in, in some places of any age, in fact, in Canada, mm -hmm. there was a survey saying that unrestricted <clears throat> abortion, which really would mean abortion up until the time of uh, birth in reality, which I don't think that most people genuinely think that way, but they, uh, at least when they fill out the forms uh, on the survey, they, they do. But it's a culture of death. We, we want to kill the elderly or anybody that doesn't want to live. We want to kill the innocent who have never had a chance to make the choice one way or the other. And uh, is this really what we want from society? I've heard it <clears throat> referred to also as a culture of convenience mm. uh, as well, which sort of ties in there. But your, your question's a good one, and it, it really moves us to the next segment of our conversation. And I guess there's a couple of ways to approach it, but one question I would ask is, as we get to the morality of it, why would a loving God want us not to end the suffering by our own means of someone who is having a difficult time? Because that's the way many people look at it is, you know, this person, I love them and they're hurting. 
and we have a loving God who, who loves us, why would he not want us to, to stop this? Mm-hmm. What, what kind of answers do we have for that? Well, I think that anybody that's worked with a lot of people, as uh, the three of us have over a period of time, uh, we've learned that uh, a lot of people learn very important lessons through suffering. I, I think personally I've learned things through suffering. We often learn more through suffering than we do when everything is going well for us. Uh, it's at that time where we start thinking more deeply about meaning of life, about love and that sort of thing. When my wife has gone through certain health issues, it, it draws me closer to or helps me to realize how, um, uh, you know, how important the, the, the big things are as opposed to the everyday things that we just go back and forth on. So I think there are lessons, and in fact, I know there are very powerful lessons that we learn through suffering. Mm-hmm. Mr. Wallace? Yes, I think there is a tendency on the part of people when they see someone suffering or when they're suffering themselves to want a way out of that suffering. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though if they do go through whatever it is, often we come out of that, as Mr. Weston said, a stronger individual. I think a good example in the Bible is that of Job. You know, in Job chapter 2, verse 9, Job was obviously in a terrifically difficult situation, a horrific situation. His wife couldn't stand seeing him suffer the way he was, uh, the anguish he was going through. And uh, she, you know, she told him, do you still hold to your integrity? Just curse God and die. You know, if uh, Job's wife had lived in this modern era, she'd probably phone up uh, 911 and uh, have someone pop over and... Uh, put him out of his misery uh, with assisted suicide. Job didn't answer that way. He basically said, uh, you know, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. You know, shall we indeed accept, you know, good from God and not the trials that, that are obviously being sent for our, our, our chastisement and our improvement? And uh, he did survive, and he survived and lived a very, very wonderful life afterward, a much improved life. And that story is there. Not that it, it's a literal story, but it also is there to help us understand that, that truth, that um, we grow stronger, we build character. And really, uh, God places us on this earth to do just that, to build character. And we don't build character by running away from the problem. And that's what, in many cases, assisted suicide is. Although, you know, the, the argument of the person who's in horrible suffering and pain is, is, is one thing. But um, not that even then uh, would God want us to look at terminating our life because it's self-murder. We're making a choice to kill ourselves. And uh, uh, that is a commandment violation. Even Christ said he learned by the things that he suffered. Mm -hmm. Or Paul actually writes that that he said that. And when he came up to the point of uh, the, the crucifixion, uh, he prayed three times, very powerfully, even sweating blood, so to speak, uh, it, probably literally when the capillaries break, when one is in total earnest, uh, saying, if there's any other way, I, I'd like to get out of this. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And um, so if he was willing to do that, then certainly uh, we should be willing to do whatever we have to. I was having a conversation with a good friend yesterday who's in a terminal health situation. And uh, very close to the end, according to the doctors, anyway. And it was <clears throat> I got off the com- uh, off the phone call and was just, I guess, really encouraged by the outlook that this person has and the 
the, the spiritual growth I've seen, the emotional growth, the perspective that's developed. And I know it's changed this person's life, but it's changed my perspective in interacting with this person and, and increased my faith in watching them go through this. Yeah, how many times have we gone to the hospital to visit somebody to try to cheer them up and in reality they do more to cheer us up or write a letter to someone who lost a loved one mm. and we get uh, a much finer letter back. Mm. Yes. So we've been talking about biblical truths and, and God's purpose as he lays it out in the Bible in Job's example. What are other biblical uh, reasons or biblical foundations that give us the idea that this assisted suicide or the self-initiated um, uh, suicide that doctors can help with, with even prescribing medications, that it's not right. What else does the Bible tell us? What are some examples? Mr. West. Well, okay, Mr. I, think if we, um, I think if we, we've all had the case of a pet, a cat or a dog or something that has uh, become ill and uh, perhaps in a terminal state. And uh, we, out of mercy, take that cat to the vet and uh, have it put down, mercifully. Is that how we want to treat human beings? Are, are we the same? Are we of more value or of equitable value uh, to an animal? Uh, you know, in this society, which has moved very much away from any trust in the fact that there is a God, even though you can prove that through mathematics and science, that there has to be a creator, but that God did give us some direction, and that direction includes the purpose for human life. And the purpose for human life that's revealed in, in Scripture, in the Gospel, is uh, indicative of the fact that we are of more value than a cat or a dog. And um, I think that's something that's been lost in our society. Um, we are told we are made in the image of God for a specific purpose, and there's a lot more in that statement than most people realize. And uh, so there is a, a value to a human being that is far more transcendent than what this very simplistic view of life is, that life exists, we die, that's it, there is no, nothing more to it. Uh, that is not the, it's not what people really believe inside either. I don't think there's too many people who actually truly believe that, but they just don't know the the uh, the true meaning of life. And once that's revealed, uh, there is a very different perspective that comes in terms of this question. <clears throat> very much so. Do you have any other thoughts about the whole purpose for life and how God's perspective on the purpose for life really should help us have a place to couch this argument. I think part of the problem that we have is that uh, generally Christianity has given us a false hope. They've told us that we're, we're just living as, uh, you know, during this lifetime we have a soul and when, it, when we die that soul goes to heaven or goes to hell. That doesn't really excite most people. Uh, I'd say most people. It certainly didn't when I was growing up. And so without understanding God's great and grand purpose for mankind, uh, that is something more than just going to uh, to heaven for a, as I often say, a celestial LSD trip. Uh, not really understanding that the real purpose of life, uh, people aren't willing to to suffer during this lifetime to get there. 
we, we have to recognize that there is a grand purpose. Uh, we, again, so, many, so few even understand what that is. But once we do, everything begins to come into perspective to realize that there is a purpose for everything. There's a purpose for a good health. There's a purpose for bad health. There's a, a cycle that we go through. We start out young and screaming and hollering. And when we go to our grave, oftentimes we're more like little children. But I think we forget the lessons that other people learn from our suffering as well. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a certain sacrifice that children often have taking care of a sick parent. And sometimes there's a, a, a powerful lesson in that in growing and maybe overlooking past hurts and past problems and drawing closer together that, uh, that would not happen any other way. Yeah, it makes me wonder if we get to the point, society gets to the point where this assisted death is much more broadly used, how is it going to impact the children who grew up who don't have the opportunity to watch suffering happen? How will it change them? Any ideas? Any well, I, I think we would have people without feelings, real feelings, if everything is just, you feel bad, you die. Uh, children, I think, would encourage parents to die, especially in today's world where many children do not respect, do not honor their parents. And uh, they would encourage them and, and uh, come to the place where that's your duty at this point in time, and people would feel guilty to do so. This uh, mission creep, or uh, however it was put Definition there. Definition creep. Yes, yes it's, uh, uh, it, it, has, it has legs. And every decision we make along this line leads to something else. And anybody who's so naive to think that it doesn't hasn't looked at history at all. <clears throat> Comment, That's Mr. also very true because even the courts in Canada have recognized that. That is one of the reasons they actually uh, put into the restrictive code on uh, medical assistance and death the fact that any witness to the person's consent, which has to be given at least two weeks prior to the actual uh, uh, killing of the individual, any, uh, any witness to that effect cannot be a beneficiary. Mm -hmm. Because they understand that there would be in this society which has in many ways lost its moral compass, uh, there would be that kind of pressure uh, to, you know, inherit even uh, prematurely uh, that which would be coming to you. Uh, the mere fact that that had to be put in law is indicative of the dangers that we're looking at. But uh, I think there's also the overall erosion to the value of life. And uh, if we lose that value of a human life, that w whether the person is healthy or whether the person is disabled or, or, or whatever their condition, there is a value there. And it's uh, our duty to other people uh, to help them have the best possible life they can, mm -hmm. not just to kill them. And so I think there is, if we have a society which rationalizes the termination of its vulnerable, uh, that is a poorer society, and one I think that in the long run we would not want to be a part of. In just a moment, I'm going to come to you both and ask you for sort of a parting thought or a, a departing thought that you want to leave the audience with. Before we do that, though, we've actually got a very good and I think fair question um, related to our conversation today, and uh, I, I, I was sort of expecting it. When a doctor asks one whether to remove artificial, 
artificial means of breathing for another that is unresponsive, is that helping them die? Is that really assisted suicide? Um, is that is there an ethical problem with that? Well, I think that uh, very clearly there's a, a huge difference between administering a drug to kill somebody as opposed to simply withholding something that if a person is not able to breathe on his own, is not able to eat on his own, uh, that's just part of the dying process. And it, it's kind of ironic that we have on one side people fighting for the right to have a doctor kill them, and on the other side we have people that uh, are fighting to keep somebody alive unnaturally. And I think that we, we have to separate the two. There's a, there's a huge difference. Yeah. Okay, Mr. Wahavich, let me just ask you, as we wind down here, what would you like to leave, what concept, what idea, what thought would you like to leave the audience with here? Well, I guess my thought is we need to look at where things go. Uh, if, if laws are passed, and we've seen laws in, like this in the past, uh, that devalue human life to that which is just... Um, no different than a cat, a dog, or an elephant, uh, then we have a lot of consequences to that in our society, mm. and our own individual lives, that of our family and loved ones, become much less valued, much less sacred uh, than they ought to be. Uh, human life is given to us for a purpose. I would hope everyone would take the opportunity to look for what that purpose really is. And I think that would really strengthen us in knowing the why God would oppose uh, this particular practice of assisted death. So that ha having that common moral core, the actually a biblical morality as, as yes. a foundation is what you're talking about. Exactly. Okay. Mr. Weston. Well, I would wholeheartedly agree with what uh, uh, Mr. Wahavich has just said. I'd like to add something that we haven't really talked too much about here, and that is the effect that this has on the doctors themselves. I mean, we've mm. touched on a little bit. Bernard Nathanson, for, Nathanson, for example, uh, was responsible either directly or indirectly for something like 75,000 abortions. And he lived with a certain amount of torment the rest of his life when he realized what he had done. Uh, so many of these things sound good on the surface. People get into them, and they find out later the consequences of what they've done. And there have been many people, uh, practitioners and others, who have been involved in that particular movement, have uh, you know, grave uh, <clears throat> misgivings about what they did, uh, go to their graves and guilt. And that's a certain element of suffering as well. And so I think we just need to stand back and and understand the big picture of things. And without, without this book, the Bible, mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty hard to understand the big picture. And we have to understand that there's a, a real purpose in life and let God take care of those things. A very important concept. Mr. Weston, thank you again for being back on the program today and for sharing your wisdom and God's wisdom as well. Mr. Wahavich, thank you for joining us from the Great White North and for bringing oh, your you. perspectives in, in your background. You've, you've spent a lot of time with this idea and wrestling with it, and so we appreciate your insights today as well. Thank you. Suffering and death is a difficult part of life, and without the Bible as a foundation for morality and a guide for the sanctity of life, practices like assisted suicide can begin to make sense. 
the truth that God created life and created human beings in His own image. He has designed this life in the flesh to assist us, as we've talked about, in developing more of His perfect, righteous character. Assisted suicide, euthanasia, may end the suffering of the individual in the short term, but it also prevents the development of God's character by the suffering or the dying person themselves and by those supporting that suffering and dying person. Ultimately, God is the giver of life, and it's His choice to determine when our lives begin and when they should end. To learn more about the purpose of life and what happens after death and these issues, be sure to obtain your free copy of our booklet, Your Ultimate Destiny. This very Bible-based, factual booklet will help you develop a greater understanding for this perspective. You can order it on tomorrowsworld.org. To learn more about answers to today's questions and others brought up by society today, please visit us each week on TW Now. Next week, we plan to examine the question, is there a right way to deal with immigration? We hope you'll join us again.